0: This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes.
1: Al Jazeera Podcasts.
0: Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts after attacking gaza for nearly five months the israeli prime minister is focusing on Rafah. benjamin netanyahu says a ground offensive is vital to eliminating hamas and any ceasefire would only delay the inevitable but what about the 1.5 million palestinians trapped there i'm laura kyle and you're listening to the inside story podcast where we dissect analyze and help define major global stories Well, to unpack the significance of an attack on Rafa, we've got a panel of guests with a range of political, humanitarian and military expertise for you. Here in Qatar's capital, Doha, we have Akbar Shahid Ahmed. He's a senior diplomatic correspondent at HuffPost. He's covered US policy on Gaza since the Obama administration. In Cairo, Najla Shawa is the country relations manager with the aid agency Oxfam. She's also a resident of Gaza. And in Bath in the UK, Patrick Trick Bury is a senior lecturer in security at the University of Bath, specialising in warfare and counter-terrorism. He's also served in the British Army in Afghanistan. A very warm welcome to all of you. Akbar, let's start with you. Why is it, do you think, the Netanyahu government is determined, despite the outcry from all corners
2: of the world,
0: to press ahead with a ground offensive in Rash- Rafa?
2: It's striking, Laura. It's, it's a reality that reflects the failure of Israel's U.S. Pact Offensive in Gaza so far, right, we're approaching six months of this war, and Israel has not been able to meet the kind of death blow to Hamas that they promised they would and that a lot of the Israeli public wants them to. So that's why you see Prime Minister Netanyahu saying, regardless of whether there's a ceasefire, regardless of whether there's a truce, he will eventually go into Rafah. And that's because he's arguing that's where there's Hamas leadership. That's where there uh, is—there are remaining hostages and that's why there's a huge strategic value to israel right israel is saying they want to control gaza in a way that they never have before they especially want to control gaza's southern border with egypt all of that puts israel at odds with the us as as your report mentioned because the us is saying look you can pursue Hamas, you cannot go into a place that you call the safe zone. That will just worsen this perception of ethnic cleansing, of genocide, as an ICJ case continues. But for the Netanyahu administration, I think there's a clear impetus to defy the U.S. on this.
0: And that, uh, as uh, Akbar said, this is uh, being declared a so-called Safe zone, therefore most of the Gazan population has crowded into this city that was only designed to sustain 300,000 people. We' now got 1.5 million people living there, mostly in tents. Can you describe for us the humanitarian situation there in Rafa?
3: yeah i mean it's very obvious that we are now talking about uh, just another level of extreme devastation uh, we have been already witnessing that we have been already warning of uh, of this uh, devastation and the human suffering uh, the the casualties but also the human suffering that it's uh, that this uh, this crisis has been uh, unfolding unfortunately speaking now about these stages where things are extremely critical At all levels, Um, humanitarian workers have not been able to operate um, by maybe third of their capacity, according to UN reports, in terms of the staff and the, the teams and the operations uh, until this moment. So you would imagine, after such operation, how how this would be impacted. A lot of INGOs and uh, non non governmental organisations and aid workers have been re-establishing semi kind of structures and and uh, um, stations to to operate from Rafa. Now all of this will be compromised uh, again. The the flow of, uh, uh, of of people towards any place. I mean. First of all, you started by saying this is a safe zone. While we we understand uh, now by Israel terms what a safe zone means, it has always been uh, uh, violated and far from being safe. Uh, Civilians have been hit. Hospitals have been hit. Aid agencies have been directly hit. We know about two, at least, INGO's uh, offices that were directly hit. Uh, Aid convoys have been hit. So you are already talking about at a very... Um, already as a, a, a fragile and mm. and um, violated situation, so trying to imagine now, seventy five percent of the population of the Gaza Strip is in Rafah. What 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 could be uh, any any? Do you really need all these panelists to tell you what to imagine if Israel has an incursion? What what is the implication? I think it's very clear that we are going to see. Uh, more uh, more suffering of more people, especially vulnerable uh, uh, people, while everybody in Gaza Strip, according to all kinds of studies and all the work that we've been doing, t- tells you that they are in need, every okay. person. OK, Let,
0: let's, Pat- we- let's bring in Patrick at this stage because he's got direct experience of urban warfare. And, and, Patrick, we're not even talking about urban warfare in the usual sense here, are we? We're talking about a tented... City, can you give us an idea of militarily what a ground invasion into Rafah would look like?
1: I can. I mean, you know, the planning for this will be probably based around two options. And you either have a conventional approach, which is what Israel has mainly used so far, both in the battle of the first third, the battle for Gaza City, and then the battle for Khan Yunus, which is firepower heavy. Uh, and reliant on taking territory and obviously identifying and destroying uh, Hamas command bunkers and positions. And also, as we know, you know, uh, hospitals, etc., which the Israelis view as collateral damage and a huge amount of civilian casualties as a result of that. So that's the first. The second one, and, and interestingly, a much more intelligence-led, more targeted approach, of which we've actually seen a few... A few uh, elements of start to develop in the second phase of the war around Klan Yunus, when they started to hit Hamas leaders individually in different places, uh, is to get into a more more targeted intelligence-based special forces uh, and even a touch of counterinsurgency approach, which Mm. is less forceful uh, and much more targeted. The Israelis actually pioneered this after the Intifada uh, in 2006 and helped the—or even earlier—and helped the U.S. pioneer it against al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, you know, at around that time, too. So they know how to do it. Uh, but the question is the political imperative and these the goals. It's like coming back to what Netanyahu says. He says that there's 25 conventional battalions or something, a quarter of the tve- mm-hmm. conventional battalions left. And so their reckoning is we've got all this support after the attack internally. Let's just keep rolling. I mean, I, I find that I understand the fear from the Israelis, of course, but from a from a Western military perspective, the inability to protect civilians at such a scale of which the Israelis have demonstrated is really beyond comprehension to me as a former military officer.
0: And we've seen, as Najda mentioned, near-daily bombing of Gaza, despite it being a safe zone. Just on Monday night, we had eight civilians killed in a house near the Kuwait hospital that was targeted by an airstrike. Do you think the, possi- the, the, the reason for these airstrikes could be that they are clearing the way for a ground invasion?
1: I do, it's, well, you, that's hard to say, you know, absolutely, without the intelligence. What, they will obviously have some sort of intelligence which is fed to a targeting cell. They'll do their collateral damage assessment. And when the, the military necessity of the target is balanced versus the collateral damage, say in the West, for example, when we were in Afghanistan... We wouldn't be able to use this sort of weapon system if there was any hope that a civilian Mm. might be killed. Now, Israel can say, well, we're going through this process, but uh, our actual weighing of how many civilians is uh, acceptable for this military target is different. (laughs) So that's what's going on. Now, what you would expect to see if they launch an offensive is, I would say, some more bombardment, some special forces raids. Some uh, attempts to root clear, and then they'll break down uh, the uh, the remaining territory around Rafa into sections, and probably sequentially go into them uh, potentially.
0: Uh, Akbar, we've had the U.S. very clearly saying it will not support a Rafa invasion until it sees a clear evacuation plan. Now, one has been presented now to the Israeli War Cabinet. We don't know the details of that, but can we imagine, or is the U.S. imagining what? the evacuation of 1.5 million civilians would look like?
2: It's unimaginable. It's unprecedented, it's unimaginable. There's not a capacity in the US government much larger than the Israeli government and military, Within the U.S. aid machinery, there isn't the capacity to imagine this evacuation. So it's, it's really tough to imagine the Israelis have a realistic plan for this. And I think that's why you see U.S. officials saying very openly, in a way they haven't, the rhetoric has certainly shifted, right? Openly they're now saying, Israel, you cannot do this. You've seen them say this in Washington, but also, importantly, in New York at the United Nations, right, where the U.S. is now talking about a temporary ceasefire for the first time ever. And I think that's because of the strategic implications of a Rafah offensive. The humanitarian toll would be undoubtedly huge, right? But let's think about a region that's already on a knife's edge. Let's think about the fact that Ramadan is now less than two weeks away. Tensions are really high, extremely high in the occupied West Bank as well, extremely high in Jerusalem. And the U.S. is looking at that picture and thinking, if Rafah becomes this bloodbath that it's almost certain to become whenever they go in when that happens what how do how does the region react right how do iran and its proxies react the us has a feeling strategy towards the houthi's in yemen right the us is concerned about hezbollah in lebanon How does everyone react to this? Right now, Israel and the U.S. don't have answers to that. Mm. And and I think what's critical there is, is just when will the U.S. decide to use its leverage in terms of actual military and intelligence support we know they're providing for this campaign? When will that be called into question rather than just having a rhetorical shift? Absolutely, because,
0: Naja, at what point is Israel going to listen to world opinion anyway? I mean, it has the ability, we've seen, to stomach extraordinary collateral damage and it does just seem to be forging ahead with the most extreme right-wing views in the Netanyahu
2: government who clearly do want to go into Rafa. WHO WANT TO GO IN, RIGHT, AND WHO who HAVE A NARRATIVE THAT WE'VE SEEN VERY, VERY OPENLY FROM THIS GOVERNMENT, SAYING NOT ONLY DO WE WANT TO, YOU KNOW, PUNISH PALESTINIANS WHOLESALE, RIGHT, FOR THE ACTIONS OF HAMAS, BUT WE WANT TO TAKE FULL CONTROL OF Gaza, RIGHT? YOU'VE SEEN THEM USE THIS PHRASE FROM THE RIVER TO THE SEA, WHICH, IRONICALLY, uh, ISRAEL SUPPORTERS DON'T WANT ISRAEL CRITICS USING, BUT THEY ARE SAYING THAT. SO THAT MEANS THEY HAVE TO KIND OF HAVE THIS HUGE ADVANCE. Um, I think what's, what's critical to remember there is the U.S. and Israel will be paying the price for this for months and mm. years and decades to come, right? So while Israel can stomach cr- the criticism today and finish its operation and say, you know what, we're done, what does this mean for Israel's ability to survive in the region for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? I think that's the really scary question.
0: Well, let's just put that to Patrick. I mean, say the U.S. pulled the plug on its weapons delivery today. How much longer could it continue?
1: Actually, do you know what I want to pick up on is, is the last contributor's point first, which is, you know, he's exactly right. I think Israel is starting to lose sight of the strategic situation here uh, mm. in favor of the operational. Yeah. And it's alienating people in the West. It is happening now that it needs. Yeah. Uh, it's alienating its ally uh, in, in the U.S., uh, and if it goes into Rafa, I don't think they really understand it. I know where they're coming from. They they think this is a bad neighbourhood. We have to show that we're tough and we have to deal with this head-on or someone else will have to deal with it again and we'll take casualties again. So I understand where they're coming from. and I understand what, how they've got I don't support it, but I understand to, up to this point to a degree, although I think the collateral damage problem is terrible. Uh, I But here's my fear. I fear for Israel if they go in for this in the longer run. That's it, and, and uh, if I was working in Israeli security,
0: I'd be fearful too. Uh, uh, on your uh, point, is well, okay? But just to let Nasha pick up on that and bring and bring her back yeah. into the discussion. Do you think the, Israel is alienating the West fast enough? Because it doesn't seem to be paying any attention. Exactly, it's not paying any attention, and I think. Um,
3: uh, the West doesn't really uh, care, or at least uh, the United States is not uh, making any uh, any pressure uh, that mm. that would really stop. I mean, again, it's just saying, yeah, make it lighter with uh, with just uh, n- don't kill too many people. I-, I think this language and and so far the behavior of like supplying uh, uh, military assistance, like uh, like things are totally supported and, and are totally uh, normal. Uh, tell us that uh, unfortunately the U.S. will not be uh, getting, uh, putting the enough pressure that we are uh, hoping for. And Israel really doesn't care. Look at what's happening after the ICJ. I think we have seen how the aid flow has decreased significantly after the ICJ. Everything, I think, everything that Israel is uh, is doing simply contradicts with any uh, any of these uh, pressures or with the international humanitarian law or any of that. So I wonder. If we are now uh, saying this level of, of pressure, talking about uh, talking about it as if, yes, uh, they are pressuring them and stopping them, um, no, I, I think things will unfortunately uh, be, uh, continue to be really uh, bad. And we are losing people by the minute. People mm. are suffering. Now, going to Rafah, where will people go? I have uh, friends and relatives there. They, they literally ask the question, where are we going? Do we go up north, where there is all destruction, where there is no food, where people are literally dying—are actually dying from hunger? We are seeing reports of uh, deaths of children out of hunger. We know that 15% are uh, at at this risk of famine. I mean, what what else is it uh, is the world or the U.S. Uh, uh, waiting for? I don't know what parameters are we use. I think I think the whole international law and uh, the world uh, system has totally failed. And I think this is not—this will be—this will have its implications on any upcoming uh, uh, any upcoming situation uh, like this. While tolerating 30,000 people killed and more than 60,000 uh, injured, they are unable to find treatment. You are talking about, uh, at best cases, 200 trucks entering, while in the past three weeks we have seen up to 40 or 30 trucks or none. Mm. Of, of aid, while well, we know that the Gaza Strip needs at least 500 in, in the in the best say, uh, scenarios before this, while it's under blockade for uh, 17 years.
0: I mean, okay. we need let's to... Okay, let's bring really in Akbar now, far. because I just want to pick up on that question of where people will go. We come back to it time and time again. Gaza has been decimated. There is nowhere to go inside, especially nowhere safe. And the UN has said it is not going to be party to any movement of people. Forced displacement, it called it. Akbar, I want to ask you what you think of satellite pictures that we're seeing uh, on the border with Egypt, where we see them preparing a buffer zone, where we see them preparing a walled camp. Cairo has denied that anything is happening there. But does Netanyahu, perhaps does the US even, see a route out for Palestinians
2: via the Rafa crossing into the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt? Cairo has denied it and importantly, Laura, they don't want us talking about it. They have uh, actually gone after journalists who have been revealing the creation of this buffer mm. zone within Egypt. So that's an important thing to remember. But it's undeniable that it is happening. Um, it would be a disaster for Egypt. Which important to remember that Egypt is also a key U.S. ally, right? Biggest Arab country, very close to the American military. The U.S. has said we will not let this happen. But again, we haven't seen the U.S. use its levers to prevent any broad-scale push into Sinai. I still think it's unlikely, um, just because. Egypt would be extremely opposed to it, Um, and I think many Palestinians would be very opposed, right? It's important to remember something like 80 percent of Gazans are themselves descendants of refugees, of of displaced people. They do not want to feel they are being pushed out of their land yet again into another foreign space with no guarantee of when they could return. And I do just want to pick up on the point about northern Gaza, because I think that's a really important point as well. In terms of the US levers to alleviate this, if we zoom out a little bit, the US wants us to be talking about trucks, right? 40 trucks, 200 trucks, 500 trucks. And what aid experts and and even some people within government are saying is that is just a deranged measure. We cannot be thinking in those terms. Mm. Let's think in a bigger sense, where there are pockets of famine in northern Gaza, and there are many entrances through Israel that could be used to bring in humanitarian aid if the U.S. and Israel chose to do that. Right now, they're not choosing to do that. So I think, as we're looking at Rafa and we we think, oh— can they do this in some kind of humane way that would take care of these civilians, but allow them to meet their military objectives? The record is very clear, right? And, and the actual U.S. leverage, in terms of taking care of Palestinian civilians, has not been used. And we aren't seeing any statements from the U.S. or any openness from the Israeli side to, to let that shape the, the operation, in Rafa.
0: Patrick, we know that uh, the Israeli army is in the north, in in central Gaza. I mean, it's across the whole of the Strip. It is still trying to hold on. It's still fighting battles in the north and other parts of Gaza, Khan Yunus. Give us an idea of how difficult it is to hold on to an area on one front whilst launching another offensive on another. Does Israel have the resources to cover the whole of the Strip?
1: In a word, yes. I think it does. Uh, its big strategic worry was a uh, Hezbollah attack from the north, and we saw obviously some fighting, but it never really got to the escalation level of, of of Iran activating a proxy in a major strategic way, which would then have Israel fighting on two fronts. That's its worst case scenario. It hasn't had to do that. It's uh, it sent some of its reservists home, and it does have the military uh, power, as it were, to to take and whole ground in 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 uh, Khan Yunis, Gaza City. Uh, and down in Rapa, the difference is, of course, there's going to be some battles. This is now it, the pockets of resistance that are left are fighting like an insurgency. You know, they can hide, they can blend in with civilians. They're not going to just stand and fight like they did in the, in the early phases. And so they're going to take casualties. There's going to be intermittent battles. There's a whole tunnel network that they're still fighting through. So, but this isn't at the scale that we saw in the in the in the initial uh fights, of course, you know, if you look at actually the way the casualties have gone, it's gone it was very fast, fifteen thousand, very fast to twenty, and then started to slow down you know in one way, thankfully, although it's, it's all too much you know still. I would say just coming back to the other contributor about the West, you know it, there it is growing. you've had a, a u.s Air Force person immolate themselves to death outside mm. the U- Israeli embassy yesterday. You've had the BBC leading with stories of gas and families who've lost 103 relatives over the, you know, over mm-hmm. on their website today and yesterday. Um, and you've had the Dutch refuse, you know, by law, their courts order them to stop supplying the Israeli parts for the F-35 jet. So there is m- movement. You can say, yeah, it's not good enough at the governmental level. You've had Ireland and Spain table motions about trade deals and, and supplies to Israel too. So there's things happening. Um maybe
0: obviously not enough, quick enough. Mm. Uh, Najla, you're a Gaza resident. We've got Netanyahu saying from day one that he will not stop until he has total victory, and to him, total victory is the elimination of Hamas. I think there has been a, a stepping back in that rhetoric over the few months and the acceptance that you simply cannot eliminate Hamas in Gaza. So what do you think total victory would look like for Netanyahu?
3: I mean that's a good question. I'm not sure uh, if I have a, a very intelligent answer, but as a Palestinian and as a Gazan, I think Israel simply um, wants to control uh, back the Gaza Strip and uh, wants to control as much as possible from the Palestinian land and doesn't really care about uh, any any uh, agreements in the past or uh, or even any of the Palestinian Authority. Um, you know, channel of negotiation, but that's that's my personal as a Palestinian unfortunately, i'm am very worried that uh, I will never be able to go back and uh, and the same for those who are now uh, uh, in in Gaza or are going to seek refuge. I think that's that's a very it's a very troubling uh, another nineteen forty eight uh, kind of uh, scenario in our head since. Since that day, uh, we were uh, ordered to leave in October
0: uh, 13th. Mm. Akbar, how much is the US considering the day after the war in Gaza? What is the plan for uh, the the
2: governance of the Strip, for the rebuilding of the
0: Strip? Is it focused enough on this?
2: The US plan, uh, I I first broke news of this in January, the US plan is, is very much focused on an Israel-U.S.-Saudi Arabia deal that would allow Saudi funding to come in, maybe some other Arab states to come in, and help reconstruct Gaza under a Palestinian authority that does not include Hamas. Uh, that's, that's what they want. Um, that doesn't mean they can get there, right? I mean, you've seen this week uh, some reshuffling on the Palestinian political side that may inch towards a new Palestinian government for the West Bank and Gaza, but all of that to see these are post-war plans, and right now we still don't have a plan to end the war. Mm. And to your mm. question from Netanyahu, total victory, I think that's just not a victory, right, that, that Israel can claim. And I think that's, that's sort of the, the issue here right now, is Israeli society is so fractured. Uh, Netanyahu himself is so alienated, angry, right, and desperate to cling on to power that I don't know when we can get Israel turning around and saying, "Okay, we're done. So while post-war conversations are happening, I think you could get some sort of veneer of stability. You've sown the seeds of huge instability to come. And and this goal of eradicating Hamas, as you mentioned, even the Israelis have kind of drawn back from that, right? Now they're saying, we're not eradicating, we're just degrading, Mm. right? And okay, and and then what do you do, right? three years down the line when when they are resurgent. They've already been resurgent amid the war when there are Israeli forces in Gaza. And I don't think that planning is happening yet in Washington or Tel Aviv.
0: Okay, it's been a really interesting discussion today. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Akbar, Shahid Ahmed, Najla Shawa, and Patrick Bury. This episode was produced by Mohamed El-Aichi, Fintan Monahan, Veronica Podjosa, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Mohamed Osman. The program was edited by Ahmed Edfaka, Zainabada and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and tune in on Wednesday for our next edition. Coming up in the take, what's behind the escalating violence in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo? That's the take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.